Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And as I said, this morning we are picking back up in 1 Peter 5 and looking at the subject of elders. Just by way of a brief reintroduction, the last time we, we looked at this, we looked at sort of a broad introduction of elders and just looked at a, a few few things that we could glean from the text. We considered, first of all, that there, there is a need for elders. And in 1 Peter in particular, of course, Peter's been talking about the kind of suffering that the church has already been going through and the kind that's going to increase uh, even more. And this then leads him at the end to give these exhortations to elders in particular because this this flock, this suffering flock is going to need guides, is going to need shepherds to shepherd them through these trials. Uh, we looked as, as well um, at the apostolic ministry of, of elders and, and how Peter, considering himself uh, an elder, uh, sort of pointed forward to the reality that the apostolic ministry would cease and elders would, would occupy of that role, and it, it was interesting, this, this last week I was actually in preparation for this, looking at some of what the early church fathers wrote uh, about elders and the, the office of, of overseer, and uh, that's one of the things that they, they talked about. Ignatius uh, of Antioch, in particular, has a phrase there where he talks about elders being in the place of the apostles now. Um, so, so very interesting there. And then, of course, we, we looked that, at the fact that these, uh, these elders serve in particular churches. They shepherd the flock that is among them. They're not over all churches all over the world, but particular congregations. And so we're going we're gonna to pick back up in this text uh, this morning and look today in particular at the duty of elders. So, beginning in chapter 5, We'll read uh, again from verse 1 down to uh, verse 4 together. And uh, the Apostle Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we read earlier from Ezekiel, when your people are shepherded by 
false and wicked shepherds, they suffer tremendously and indeed grow weak and frail and wander away. But when they are shepherded by godly men in accordance with Your Word, what a blessing it is to Your people, to the church, and how You you use pastors to strengthen Your people. But I know all of us can think over the course of our lives of pastors who have pastored us well and how it was such a tremendous blessing to us. Lord, we desire that. We desire that here. We desire that You would give to us many men who can serve as elders and shepherd the flock of God here. We need a biblical understanding. We we need to look to Your Word to understand the calling of elders and what what they are called to do and how they are called to imitate Christ's own shepherding work. And so Lord, as we continue to look at this matter this morning from 1 Peter, I pray that You would teach us from Your Word and give us this this model, this example to be followed that we all may flourish as well. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of days ago, Kentucky Today, which is a publication, a news publication of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, they posted an article titled, Percentage of Americans viewing Scripture as the literal Word of God reaches new low. It was reporting on a recent uh, Gallup poll that had been released that showed really an unsurprising trend of more and more Americans rejecting the Bible as the Word of God. As Americans become more secular, as they become more postmodern, as everyone believes that truth is something that is malleable and can be determined by any and every individual, as it becomes overall more confused about nature itself, about right and wrong, of course this rejection of the Bible is to be expected. It's not not surprising. What stood out, however, was that this same poll showed that only 44% of professing Christians who at least claim to attend worship weekly said that they believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, Polls can sometimes be poorly done, of course, especially when the questions are worded in confusing ways. And so it's certainly possible that the percentage of Christians who believe the Bible is the Word of God is a little better than the poll showed. But regardless, 44% is a pretty big number. And the result, period, 
are, are bad. And one professor of theology commenting on this rightly said that one's perception of Scripture, their idea, their understanding of whether or not it is the Word of God, one's perception of Scripture is largely shaped by one's exposure to it. Or to put it another way, as goes the pulpit, so go the people. The unfortunate reality is that it is not at all surprising that many professing Christians have at best erroneous views of the Bible and at worst downright unorthodox and heretical views of it. And it's not surprising because so many pastors that they sit under treat the Bible as if it's nothing more than an afterthought, which itself is a further reflection of the unfortunate reality that many pastors either do not know or do not care about what their actual responsibility as pastors is. Many pastors treat the office and the church as if it's some kind of business venture. It's a corporation. It has to be managed like a corporation. So they will literally bring in business consultants to teach them how to run a church. I had a conversation with a local pastor not too long ago who forthrightly admitted that he praise the Lord, used to think this very same way. The church had quotas that it had to meet. It had quarterly reports that it had to give to its investors. People were treated as nothing more than numbers on a spreadsheet, and the numbers had to keep increasing every quarter, or the business, like any corporation, was failing. Southern Baptists as a whole are notorious for doing this very thing, for reducing everything down to a numbers game. And so what we have in many places, frankly, is a crisis of the pastorate because we're not looking to the Bible for our understanding of what pastors are and what they are supposed to do. We're not even many times looking to church history. I mean, it's terrible to neglect and reject the Bible. But if you were going to reject that, I would hope at least you would look at church history to get some model rather than modern day business ventures. Many are simply taking their cues from the business world, from popular culture and entertainment. And at best, they are joining these philosophies to twisted readings of Scripture. So this morning, as we continue to consider this particular subject of elders or pastors, again, the the word is used interchangeably to describe the same office, but as we we consider this again this morning. I want to consider particularly what the Bible teaches us about the duty of elders. 
And I want you to notice with me, first of all, that we find that the chief duty of elders is to shepherd. The chief duty, the one under which everything else is subsumed, is the work of shepherding. This is where the term pastor actually comes from. It's the Latin word, pastor, meaning just shepherd. Elders, in other words, as shepherds under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, are surprisingly supposed to shepherd. Which at a bare minimum means that pastors are not TED talkers. You don't just get up once a week and give a 30-minute speech that inspires something in someone. They're not CEOs. They're not influencers. They're not motivational speakers. They're not to be life coaches or therapists or especially not entertainers and stand-up comedians. I feel like sometimes when I've watch sermons from a lot of these well-known pastors. It's like their whole week is spent coming up with jokes to tell. They are not to have ambitions to climb some sort of career ladder, viewing each church as a stepping stone to bigger and better things. They are not to be seeking personal fame and glory. Fundamentally, They are shepherds. Friends, no one knows the names of well-known shepherds. Do you know people who are shepherds? I don't don't know any shepherd. I don't know many people who know someone who's a shepherd. Shepherds are unknown. They're obscure. Time magazine doesn't put shepherds on the cover of the magazine. Shepherds live and die in relative obscurity. And so at a bare minimum, pastors are to embrace a calling that calls the vast, vast majority of them to a life of obscurity. Now, of course, we all know that there are going to be some pastors who are more well-known, sometimes just by chance, by, by providence, if you will. They, they took a stand on some important issue, like Martin Luther, for example, and the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. There are certainly, over the history of the church, pastors who we, we know their names. But the vast majority of them you've never even heard of. We were looking this morning in Sunday school just briefly at Richard Baxter. We know his name. Puritan pastor. Hardly anyone knows the name of the man who pastored before him or after. The vast majority are called to live a life of obscurity. The real question, of course, is what is involved in this particular work of shepherding? What does it mean to shepherd? Well, notice with me again what Peter says here in verse 2. 
he exhorts the elders who are among these Christians in various churches throughout Asia Minor, and he says to them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherding here is defined by a close synonym which means to oversee something. In fact, in 1 Peter Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the Apostle Paul, describing this very same office of elder, calls it the office of an overseer. And this means that there's a, a watchfulness that's involved. There's a care and a responsibility to lead. Pastors are responsible, as Peter says, for the flock of God that is among them. God has a people. They are His sheep. And Christ is the chief shepherd. And pastors are responsible to care for those sheep that are among them in particular areas. They are not omnipresent as God is. And so they cannot oversee all of God's people as God does. This is one of the fatal flaws, if I can take a shot at something real quick, at the whole multi-site church model. The idea that a single pastor who gets a big name for himself can pastor not only this particular church, but can then live stream the sermon to another location, and that is somehow him pastoring that other location, even though he's not even looking at them, nor does he know who they are. It's, in a very real sense, a failed attempt to be like God. It's like the the first sin in the Garden of Eden to be everywhere, to stream yourself all over the place. This is not biblical because those people are not among you and those pastors are not among them. You can't be omnipresent. You have to shepherd those who are among you in local churches. People who are among them are part of their local flock. And it is to those people that pastors are responsible to watch over and they are responsible to lead those people to know and to love Christ all the more. They are not to draw the flock to themselves. In fact, If they're doing this, this is a sign, a clear sign of a false pastor, of a wolf. Paul, in fact, warns about this to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 to 30, since he's giving them some final exhortations. The last time he's going to see them, he he says to them, he, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Watch them. 
care for them. Fix your attention on their welfare in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, to shepherd the church of God which He obtained by His own blood. And then he adds, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, listen, to draw away the disciples after them. Christ bought them with His blood. And these wolves are drawing people not to Christ, but to themselves. It is the task of true God-fearing elders in their work of overseeing the flock of God to point people to the way of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now, you can think of it like this. Christ is the infinitely wealthy shepherd. And He has flocks all over the world. And all of His flocks have been purchased at a great cost. A cost that He could pay because of His own infinite worth. But a cost nonetheless. And He purchased these flocks at the cost of His own blood. And as a result, they all now belong to Him. But of course, many of His sheep are not yet in His pasture. They're not in His land. They are scattered in many other lands. And they have to be brought to this pasture. And so He has raised up other shepherds who know Him very well and who know the way to His pasture. And He has given them the responsibility to go out into these distant lands and to oversee particular flocks. And in their work of overseeing, they're not just keeping these flocks on the foreign pastures. No, their responsibility is to lead all of these flocks to their new home in Emmanuel's land. There can be many challenges on this journey. For one thing, all the sheep have different personalities. A good sheep has to learn the disposition of all of the sheep. This is part of his overseeing work. He notices that there's this one particular sheep who's, who's rather plump. And likes to just bulldoze their way through the rest of the flock. Sometimes that can be rather dangerous for the other sheep. It can cause them injury. And so the good shepherd has to know this sort of bullheadedness of this particular sheep and has to get in the way, stand in between the sheep and the others and rein him back a little bit. He notices that 
there's another little sheep over here that's rather weak and frail. And this sheep often falls behind in the journey. This particular sheep tends to wander off, gets behind. Sometimes the shepherd just has to come to the sheep individually and pick him up, pick her up, and carry the sheep on his shoulders. On the journey, there are thieves as well who would like nothing more than to steal a sheep for their own purposes. And they will imitate the voice of the chief shepherd to do so. And sometimes, as these thieves are calling sheep away from the flock, the good under-shepherd notices that they're beginning to break away from the rest of the flock, and he has to go after them and use his rod to direct them back into the fold, and he has to chase the thieves away. So part of the shepherding task involves course, warning and rebuking. Elders cannot be afraid of conflict. Now, you don't go looking for it. Right? It would be rather foolish as you're leading the flock through a dangerous valley to lead the flock into every raging battle that there is in the valley you have to expect that there are dangers on the way and a good shepherd is going to protect the flock. You have to recognize that just as Paul warned, fierce wolves will arise. And when there is a danger of deceptive and false teachers leading people away from Christ, when there are wolves among the sheep, you are failing as a pastor if you don't protect the flock and allow the wolves to just devour them. One of the explicit responsibilities, in fact, of elders that Paul mentions in Titus chapter 1, verse 9 is not only that they themselves must hold firm to sound doctrine and that they may, so that they may be able to teach it as well, but part of their shepherding task, he says, is to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. To be able to recognize the subtle lies that lead people into sin and to be able, through the Word, to answer those lies and so guard the sheep from the wolves. And so shepherding involves knowing the sheep, knowing what their dispositions and, and what their tendencies are. It involves guarding them against wolves and thieves. But it also involves training the sheep to know and recognize their true master, the chief shepherd. And this is arguably the greatest task of all. Teaching the sheep to know Christ more and more and to follow Him and love Him and hope in Him all the more.
You know, it's as, as if we're as we're thinking about this picture of under shepherds leading the sheep on a journey to the chief shepherd's land. It's as if the the vast majority of their time is spent just speaking to the sheep about how great their chief shepherd is. About conversing, speaking to the sheep about the master they know. And encouraging the sheep along as they they hope in Him. They speak to the sheep, saying to them, "You, you know, you know, dear sheep, how much your chief shepherd loves you. Do you understand that? You were doomed to be slaughtered. You were sheep who were malnourished. Your skin was hanging off of your bones. Your coat was shedding. It was matted. It was patchy. You were ugly. And no one had an interest in you except the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd loved you. And he saw you in your state and he had pity. And even when he heard that the cost to purchase you would come at the expense of his own blood, he didn't even hesitate. But he gave his blood to purchase you and now you belong to him. And your shepherd now is a man of infinite kindness and grace. He is meek and he is lowly. He is gentle. Wolves tremble at the sound of his thunderous voice. And yet somehow at the same time, that same voice draws sweetly those who who know Him. His beauty is nearly indescribable. He's whiter than snow that glistens on a sunny day when it has fallen and it's sparkling everywhere. His, His radiance is brighter even than the radiance of the sun. And yet, somehow, you can look at Him You don't have to turn away. You can't even look at the sun without it searing your eyes, but but you can look at Him. When you come into His pasture, you will find that you will never be malnourished again. You can graze all day and never be full and yet always be satisfied. The very grass that you eat, once eaten, returns again. He has bread that appears and reappears every single morning. He has water that you can drink and the very water itself replenishes and revives your life for all eternity. When you arrive in this land You will not be the only ones who are there. Many have gone on the journey before you. Many more will come after you. And as many as there are who have come, the countless, the the innumerable amount, the myriads of myriads, as many people as there are, somehow the pasture still remains a very broad place. 
with much grazing to be had. You've heard the songs of birds before, but when you arrive here, you will hear the songs of angels. And you will hear the songs of men and women who are singing His praise, who cannot but help themselves. Their hearts compel them to. It is the release of their hearts as they sing of the Lord who is Himself all of the glory in Emmanuel's land. The under-shepherds, friends, the, the, the elders of the church are constantly speaking and preaching and teaching about the glories not of themselves, but of the chief shepherd. Reminding the sheep of who He is and what they can look forward to. And because of this, when the sheep do finally arrive to the kingdom of the chief shepherd, they will know the place. And they will know the Lord of the place. It will have a, an odd familiarity to it. They will recognize who the Lord is. They will recognize His voice. On their journey, they will have known Him from afar. They will have loved Him and have hoped in Him while yet not being able to see Him. But when they finally come near, it will be as if all of what they had known of Him before will not be different, will not be contradicted, but will be amplified to an infinitely greater degree. And when they arrive, and only when they arrive, will the work of the under-shepherds be finished. That's what they do. They lead the sheep to Emmanuel's land. That's what they're called to do. To watch over the sheep. To guard them. To teach them. To feed them. And to lead the sheep home to their shepherd. It's not a coincidence. But some of the very last words that Peter himself heard from Jesus after He had been raised from the dead. And Jesus in His grace restored one of His own sheep. It's not a coincidence that, that Peter hears the words of Jesus, Jesus telling him, Do you love Me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend My sheep. Shepherd My sheep. It's, it's not a coincidence that He now ends His his letter here with these last words, the words he had heard of his own Lord, shepherd the sheep. That's what they do. Now, with that fundamental duty of shepherding in mind, there is a manner in which they are to carry out this duty that accords with who they are as under-shepherds of Christ. 
And this is what we find Peter going on to describe in the rest of verses 2 and 3. He says that they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. There's there's three contrasts here that help to define how good shepherding is to be carried out. And most all of these qualities are actually the working out of the character qualities that qualify someone to actually serve as an elder in the first place, per 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So for example... Shepherding, Peter says, is to be done not under compulsion, but willingly. This is similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, when he says there, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, if they desire to serve as an overseer, he desires a noble task. Shepherding, in other words, is something an elder should want to do. It should not be the case that there's just no one else to do it, so I'll do it myself. Elders are to be men who love Christ and who love the church and out of that love for Christ and love for the church and that desire to serve in this way, they pursue becoming elders of the flock. And this is what we should want. This is what we should want, friends, for anyone who serves as an elder here. Does this man actually want to be an elder? Or are they just doing it? Their name has come up and they just feel obligated for some reason. And to you men, I would say, if you have not thought about this before, maybe think about it now. We don't have to, of course, send you off to seminary. We don't need you to fill the pulpit every week. I think sometimes we can get the wrong ideas about what serving as an elder in a local church entails, and those ideas can discourage men away from serving the church like this. But you don't have to go off somewhere and teaching is of course something that can be learned if you feel ill-equipped. But I would say to you, men in particular, that perhaps you should seriously think about this and pray to the Lord and talk to Him. And if you want to serve as an elder, that, that simple desire is a good starting. The church is never going to be underserved by having too many elders. It can flourish. Now, additionally, Peter says that elders should not shepherd for shameful gain, but eagerly. And again, this is the same as what Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, Therefore, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be 
arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. The flock is not an opportunity for enriching yourself and it's not a platform to further your own ambitions. The first time I was in Malawi, Malawi of course has a lot of poverty, a kind of poverty that probably most all of us have never even seen before. And Josh told me that one of the issues that his own ministry has to work through and weed through is that a lot of men see pastoral ministry as an opportunity to enrich themselves, to get extra money. They had to disfellowship from churches who were led by greedy men who used the meager offerings of a village church to line their own pockets. And some of them have become skilled in saying all of the right things to parachurch ministries so that they can get funds that they just pocket themselves. And so they've had to be careful to weed through all of those who are, who are just led by men full of greed. This is an automatic disqualification because it's these kinds of men who destroy sheep and who bring blasphemy against the name of Christ. Now, sometimes greed can be hard to spot, especially if it's just lying dormant in someone's heart and you don't actually see it. But one of the early telltale signs that a man is greedy, excuse me, is when he starts to compromise on the gospel. And when he starts teaching false doctrine or when he starts getting soft on false doctrine. This was a problem that was evident among Cretan churches in particular. Paul said in Titus chapter 1, verses 10-11, to 11, he said, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False doctrine, in other words, tends to go hand in hand with greed and a desire for money. And good pastors are to remain blameless from the charge of greed by remaining faithful and teaching sound doctrine. And lastly, Peter says that elders should also not be domineering over those in their charge, but should rather be examples to the flock. Again, this is similar to what Paul says when he disqualifies potential elders who display characteristics such as being Violent, quick-tempered, quarrelsome, always wanting to argue, arrogant, stubborn. Sometimes men who hold positions of authority are more concerned with having a godlike knowledge of all things as if they've learned everything there is to know 
or as if they are the final authorities in matters of truth. And when these men are questioned in any way, rather than trying to reason and explain how they've arrived at certain conclusions or decisions, they tend to take it as a personal assault and then just lash out. They're men who want only control. They turn into a kind of golem figure. They have the ring of power and it's their precious and anyone who wants to take it, they're going to fight them. But the way that elders are to lead is by setting an example to be followed. There's a very real sense in which you should be able to look at elders in the church and say to someone, do you see how that man loves Christ? Do you see how that man loves the church? Do you see how that man loves his family? How he loves the Word of God? Do what he's doing. Imitate Him as He imitates Christ. The flock needs to see the way of Christ imitated. It's obviously the case that elders are going to have their, their own sins that they have to repent of. We're not looking for men who are already glorified on earth, but they should have progressed far enough along in their walk with Christ that you can catch glimpses of Christ shining through them. Reach the level of maturity in the faith where that's evident. The work of elders is an essential work for the health and the well-being of the church. Overall, The churches would be in much better shape if they had men faithfully carrying out this work and not, again, seeing the church as a platform to make a name. Sometimes, churches don't have this. They don't have this because perhaps unknowingly or knowingly they have brought in wolves to shepherd them. Sometimes they don't because the flocks themselves are not actually a flock of God. They're goats. Sometimes it can seem just like too daunting of a task that comes with way too much risk and way too much heartache and not much payoff, and so men would just rather not even consider it. Leave that to someone else. The end of the passage tells us that the work of elders comes with a great reward and a great motivation to serve the church faithfully in this way. Peter says in verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I don't know what this is exactly. I don't know if it is an actual crown or if it's just a metaphor. What I do know is that either way, the promise is that the work of elders will receive a great reward and honor. 
And that's not to imply that you labor not for Christ and not for the sheep, but for the honor that is to come. But it is to say that all the trials and all the heartache and all the battles and all the wounds from fighting with wolves and all the fatigue from guiding the sheep along the journey will not remain unseen. It will be worth it. Because nothing will be greater than hearing from the Master. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the kingdom. Nothing will be better than hearing the words of the Master say those very words. The office of elder is indeed a very serious one. There are great, great consequences for treating it lightly. There are great consequences for abusing it. There are great consequences for speaking idle words. But it is also one that is necessary and of great benefit to the church. It is for the well-being of the church and it is one that comes with great promise from Christ Himself. So friends, let's go together to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would be kind and gracious to us to raise up elders from among us who can shepherd and who are willing to shepherd the flock of God through Emmanuel's Lamb. Father, there is no one greater than the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. There is no one who will love the sheep greater than He. But I do pray, Lord, for our church and I pray for all of Your churches that You would raise up men from among us who can give to the sheep a foretaste, a tiny foretaste of the glories that are to come we would be able to feed the sheep with little crumbs of the Gospel so that when they arrive finally to Christ, they will partake in a great feast of that same bread. So Lord, be gracious to us and shepherd us, we pray in Jesus' name.